uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. You ever feel like you're being played? Like the people who run the world have got you on a treadmill that's feeding you just enough reward to keep going. Gold stars on your attendance sheet at elementary school, apps that encourage you to run by pretending that you're fleeing from zombies, bosses that keep track of everyone's progress in a public spreadsheet, even governments keeping track of your credit score. Well, as video games have gotten more popular, the world of flesh and blood has adopted some of its aspects, not all of them good. Gamification is here, and it is all around us, and the powers that be are using it to keep us in line. With me here to talk about all of this is ex-neuroscientist, current game dev, and best-selling author Adrian Hahn. His newest book is You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control All of Us. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. Great to be here. All right, so I'd like to start off with basics. We're going to be talking about gamification a lot today. So what is gamification? It's pretty simple. It's the use of game mechanics, game ideas, uh, ideas from video game design, like points, badges, missions, quests, leaderboards, achievements, for non-game purposes. So using um, you know missions for workplaces or using achievements for fitness apps, that sort of thing. And when did you first start to, I mean, obviously you've been in this space, you're an ex-neuroscientist, you're a game dev, you've been in this space a long time. When did you first start to notice that it was kind of everywhere and that it was a little maybe worrisome? Well, so, you know, the ideas behind gamification have been around for a long time. I think a lot of people would understand that, you know, things like military honors and medals and leaderboards have been around for centuries or millennia. But you know, the term gamification only really started appearing about 15 years ago uh, in the way that we'd understand it for apps like Foursquare and, um, <clears throat> you know, Facebook and so on. And the reason why I think it started cropping up a lot more is because obviously because of the internet, because of smartphones, uh, because of sensors, and because we just have so much data now that gamification be, can be applied to. All right, I've got uh, I got a little clip I want to play. It's this 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 thing that happened in 2010, 12 years ago uh, that I watched and it haunted me and it's haunted me since. Um, and I'm really glad that it made it into the introduction of your book. I was because I started reading. I was like, you can't talk about this topic and not talk about this specific dice summit speech. I'm going to play just a little bit of it for the audience now. Maybe if I can get there. Be like, well, I think it'll be. Like this, you'll get up in the morning to brush your teeth and the toothbrush can sense that you're brushing your teeth. And so, hey, good job for you. 10 points for brushing your teeth. And it can measure how long and you're supposed to brush them for three minutes. And you did a good job. You brush your teeth for three minutes. And so you get a bonus for that. And hey, you brush your teeth every day this week. Another bonus. Right, and who cares? The toothpaste company, the toothbrush company, the more you brush, the more toothpaste you use, they have a vested financial interest. You go to breakfast, there's the cornflakes. On the back, there's a little uh, web game that you can play. While you eat, instead of reading the back, you play a game while you eat your cornflakes. And uh, you, you get that, and you get 10 points just for eating the cornflakes. And then it turns out you can see your list of friends who also have cornflakes and the scores that they got because your Wi-Fi and, and Facebook connected and everything. All right, that's enough of that. So, 
Um, when I was watching this, I was watching it on YouTube and I was horrified. I was like, I don't want to live in this world. This sounds awful. And my roommate, <laughs> uh, who is an actuary now, um, was like, Hey, this sounds great. We should definitely like fully charge into this world. This sounds incredible. Can you tell me who that guy is and put this speech in context and talk about like, what were the big ideas kind of rumbling around Silicon Valley in the game space in 2010 that helped build this world? <laughs> So that guy is Jesse Shell. Uh, he's a game designer and he runs a games company and he's designed some really good games, actually. So he's not some tech bro who doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, if you played um, I Expect You to Die, I think some really cool like escape room games. But when this happened in 2010, it was kind of during this point where gamification was really exploding and also at a point where people thought video games were the way to transform humanity into something better. And that sounds kind of crazy, but it's the, the way I would describe it is almost like a backlash against the perceived demonization of video games for a long time. So a lot of people who've grown up with video games obviously remember, um, you know, video games being seen as just uh, a distraction or evil or, or that sort of thing for a long time. And now, um, you know, they are seen as you know from about 2010 they're seen as something that can improve the world that can make the world better um through gamification and so this talk was one of a pair of really influential talks basically saying hey if we added uh game mechanics to everything then the world would be better you know if we can just gamify the things that we find hard to do then um you know the world will be a better place now this one was kind of a bit controversial because I think a lot of people at the time thought it was absolutely ridiculous, uh, a bit like you. But then again, a lot of people were, you know, like a friend who thought it was fantastic and they wanted uh, more things to be gamified. And so it was a little bit pathetic, um, especially since later on in the talk, he kind of says, well, this could all turn out terribly and we could all just be manipulated by companies. But then he says, but yeah, maybe it'll be good. So we'll see. And then uh, 10, 12 years on, I think we can see that maybe it hasn't just been good. He also kind of dives into, and you talk about in your book, and you've kind of just, right before I asked you that question, you, you kind of highlighted a little bit. There are innovations in our life and in the technology space that have allowed this gamification to happen. Um, disposable, highly disposable technology. What is some of the other stuff? Yeah, so it's really two things. The, the first thing is the technological side, which I talked about. You know, in order to gamify something uh, in a really responsive and real time manner, you need to have that data arriving in real time. So, for example, you know, if you want to gamify uh, your fitness and your steps, ideally, you're getting your steps uh, in real time to your smartphone. And so um, you need a smartphone, uh, so it has a screen. You need a, uh, a motion sensor in your phone. Maybe you want a GPS sensor, that sort of thing. And, you know, we're used to those things just being in a uh, device in our pocket. But obviously, 20 years ago, that just wasn't the case. Uh, I had a pedometer when I was a kid because I was a nerd. And it wasn't connected to anything. I mean, it just had a number on it. <laughs> um, you couldn't really gamify that very well. But... As we've added more of these sensors, um, and as we've kind of digitized a lot of work, um, you know, even if it's not sort of sensing something in the real world. So if you if you're a programmer, you know, if you use Jira, if you use Slack, if you use Microsoft 365, all of these things are being gamified in different ways. But I think the 
other reason why gamification has grown is because it's sort of ridden the coattails of this idea that video games rather than being a distraction are a good thing and so if you think video games are a good thing and they make you better and they make you happier uh, and they improve well-being then surely gamification would as well so those are the two things that i'd say have really contributed towards the rise of gamification yeah it, it it's it seems so weird now um I was kind of at the tail end of still being picked on in like middle school for reading, you know, horror books and liking video games, but it was dwindling then. And now it's the dominant culture, right? Marvel movies. I can't, I like, if you went back and told 12 year old me that Iron Man, a comic that I thought was kind of bad was going to be a dominant cultural figure, I would have made fun of you. I would have never believed it. And now here we are, where nerds have won, and they're reshaping the world and their image, and some of this stuff is a little creepy. <laughs> um, and it seems like one of the nerds' favorite psychologists uh, is B.F. Skinner. And it's funny, reading your book and being a complete layperson when it comes to psychology, I had just assumed that like BF Skinner and behaviorism was like, all right, that's sacrosanct. Everyone believes and understands this. And that's not quite the case. So can you tell us who Skinner is and why he's important to this story? So Skinner is a very influential psychologist from, um, you know, the last century. And he basically invented this idea of moral behaviorism, which is a kind of variation on behaviorism. And that basically views human behavior and human motivation as really being only the product of the environment and really only the product of reward and punishment. So the way in which you get someone to do something, the reason why any human does anything is because they're either being rewarded to do it or they're being punished, you know, not to do it. And, um, you know, the funny thing is I, I studied psychology at university and i think we had like one lecture on bf skinner and then it was just like well obviously this is wrong so let's just move on um the famous the, <laughs> no, wait, i'm sorry i was gonna the famous one being the skinner box right that's right yes so skinner box being where you kind of put a rat in a box and you attach uh, a lever to the release of um pellets and uh you know the rat basically keeps on hitting the the lever in order to get um well, actually, that's a different thing. But yeah, Skinner Box is where you, you know you're able to provide reward and punishments to to a rat through you know electrified um, floor and that sort of thing, and so it, it or, or you can give them food. And I think that you know the funny thing is going into the tech industry after university, um, despite the fact that psychologists um and the science community kind of assume that everyone knows that uh behaviorism has kind of been discredited um the tech industry and the games industry kind of assume that that's really the only method for human motivation and behavior and you know the reason why it's been discredited you know it's pretty simple when you think about it um there's lots of reasons why we do things and it's not always because we're being rewarded or punished Right. Uh, we do a lot of hard things uh, because we find them um, satisfying or because they're important to other people. You know, one other theory of human motivation is called self-determination theory. And within this, there are some really important you know, precepts. For example, the fact that people are motivated through autonomy. So they want to have agency in what they do. They don't want to just be told what to do all the time. 
and they're also motivated by connectedness. So they want to help other people and they want to feel that their work or their actions are important to benefit other people. And that's also the idea of mastery, where people like to do things and get good at things, get good at playing the piano, get good at playing a video game, get good at running, that sort of thing. And you'll notice that those three things are not really about reward or punishment. They're about something deeper. So that's kind of where the psychological field has moved on to. And also this new thing called predictive processing, which is a kind of shiny new idea. But, you know, the way in which a lot of games are made and way in which a lot of technology is made is with the idea that behaviorism is the only game in town. Yeah, it was really wild to be reading your book because we live in it every day, right? They're like, especially as a, me as a gamer, um, you interact with a series of different, I will be crudely reductive Skinner boxes around us all the time. Um, and I just assumed living in that world that like, okay, well, BF Skinner is the guy. He figured it all out. He reduced all human interactions down. But like, as you said, it, it's when you know even just a little bit more, and if you think about it even just a little bit, it is so self-evidently false, Right. Um, exactly. Can you tell me about coming into the games industry as a developer with that knowledge and then like butting up against the people that are that still believe in the Skinner boxes? Like, how do you navigate around that? Well, it, it's funny because I feel like the games industry, you know, is almost of two completely different minds about how, you know, people are motivated. Because, you know, video games originally didn't really have a lot of this sort of Skinner box type stuff before. It was just, you know, playing Pong and Space Invaders. And there's a lot of video games that don't really have much Skinner box type manipulation. Uh, so if you play Legends of Zelda Breath of the Wild or Elden Ring or these sorts of games, you know, you don't really have achievements uh, or grind or reward or punishment quite in the same way. <clears throat> But increasingly, a lot of games have this sort of grind and they have these sorts of loops and um, behaviorist tricks that are basically trying to get people to play longer and to pay more. Um, and so it's almost as if you've got one set of game designers or one half of a game designer's brain, which is like, I just want to go and make this fun, you know, and I just want to have, provide players with a really interesting, joyful experience. And then you have the other half of the mind, which is like, yeah, but I kind of have to make money and ideally as much money as possible. So if I can get people playing for a hundred hours by giving them this to-do list and, you know, um, manipulating, you know, how that's shown and giving them, you know, minute rewards and punishments and in a kind of variable schedule that makes them, you know, compulsive uh, players, then I can make more money. And so... That's where, you know, a lot of people in the games industry would say, well, of course we don't do that. But at the same time, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Right. And as I call myself a reformed completionist, uh, I am the person that sees the big map in an Ubisoft Assassin's Creed game and feels compelled to tick all of the boxes, uh, even to the point where you know, maybe the last 10 hours I am not having a good time, but something is compelling me onward. <laughs> Uh, so have you ever fallen prey to this in a game yourself? I'm exactly the same way. And, and that's kind of why I don't play Assassin's Creed anymore. I remember playing, uh, opening up the Assassin's Creed Unity map 
and it had I, I mean no joke i think it had something like 500 icons on it um of all this useless crap you could go and collect like uh treasures and cockades and so on and i remember thinking well it's kind of my job to go and clean up this map that's what you do in games you know you you try and squeeze every bit of content out of uh you know out of this game even though yeah you're just like look i'm not really having fun but i just feel like uh i've been given this list of tasks and i should do it um because what if there was something really good in this chest maybe it'll be a really nice piece of armor it's probably just like 50 gold coins but um it might be something really good and you know that's an example of the gamification of video games right that's not an important part of assassin's creed people don't play assassin's creed to go and open up treasure chests they play it to go and run across rooftops and stab people in the face you know that's what we're here for but it, it sort of turned into this other thing Right, they put all this stuff in the way of the core experience, right? And in Unity, it's funny you say that because Unity was the first one where I was so excited about it because I'm really interested in the French Revolution. I was like, oh, I'm going to get to see their weird alt history version of that. And all I remember about that game is, as you said, opening up that map after you get out of the Bastille the first time and just being tired, looking at it, being like, oh, I got to go open all of these chests before I go and find out what Napoleon's doing. Like, that's no fun. Um, yeah, and, and sometimes people will go and say, well, just go and, well, you don't have to do that. You could just go and, like, tell yourself not to do that. I'm like, yeah, but that's who I am. I, I will go and clean that up. And if you go and show me this list, I, I, I can't help myself. Yeah, it's and, just this yeah. pulse in my brain that won't let me not do it. It's terrible. <laughs> so I just have to avoid those games now. Um. Another place that this is gets real interesting and weird is when we talk about the self-improvement movement um, has become big on gamification, right? Uh, can we get into some of that? Yeah. So this kind of initially tied into the whole quantified self-movement, you know, in the early 2000s when people got really excited about how digital sensors could help us understand our bodies more. So things like, you know, pedometers and GPS trackers and that sort of thing. And then people thought, okay, well, I, you know, now that I know how many steps I've done today, how can I motivate myself to do more tomorrow? Why don't we use video games? Because that's something that I know about. And so, you know, that has extended massively so that it's kind of hard to find a self-improvement Apple website now that doesn't have some form of gamification. So that might be a mindfulness app saying, okay, uh, if you want to go and uh, earn this badge, you need to complete a 10-day streak of meditations. You know, Or it might be my Apple Watch saying, oh, if you want to go and get this October Challenge medal, you need to do more exercise than you did last month, even though you know I might be ill or I, I just can't literally do any more exercise than I did last month. Um, or it might be Duolingo using gamification to try and make learning a new language you know, a little bit more interesting. So it's it's kind of everywhere. And I think that I, I sort of have mixed feelings about the use of gamification and self-improvement. Um, I think if people understand and they kind of opt into the gamification, I don't see a big problem there. I do think there's more of a problem where people think that it's working in a way that is for their benefit. Because the truth is a lot of gamification and self-improvement apps is really not there for the user's benefit. It's there to make more money. Um, so if you have a fitness app that says, oh, we'll give you extra points or badges if you run 
20 days in a row. That's not really a good thing for you to do. You should be taking rest days, you know, um, but it's good for the app because they get more engagement and you might subscribe more or they might be able to show you more adverts. So it's a, it's a mixed bag, I think. One of the first places I really encountered this was uh, <clears throat> another thing that you write about in the book, the Dr. Kawashimi's brain age on the DS. Um, and there's there was kind of a few years ago this uh, this kind of big push companies like Luminosity and others that you know say that if you do crossword puzzles and you do all these things, it's going to train your brain. Well, de-age your brain will make you smarter, etc. Um, does any of that actually work? Um, you know, it, so there's not a lot of evidence, really. Um, if it does work, it doesn't really work as well as any other useful thing you might think of, right? There's a lot of things that can make your brain a bit more agile, which is, you know, going for a walk or having a conversation or doing a crossword or learning a new instrument or doing some painting. <clears throat> it's, you know, if you look at the studies that brain training apps and games have done of their efficacy, it's not super convincing, honestly. Um, and a lot of independent studies say, look, this stuff is pretty marginal. And the benefits that you get from playing a brain training game are really limited to the sorts of games that you play. So, for example, if the brain training game is trying to get you to memorize more numbers, uh, then you'll get really good at memorizing numbers, you know? And maybe that's useful if you need to memorize a lot of numbers. But actually, it's probably not going to improve your general intelligence, which is, I think, what a lot of people are hoping for. So, Lumosity actually um, made a lot of uh, overblown claims about its ability to affect uh, neurodegenerative diseases. And they ended up being fined uh, $50 million by the FTC um a few years ago because they didn't really have any proof for that um they only ended up paying two million dollars because they couldn't afford 50 million uh but they're still around so you know these brain training companies have been a little bit more careful since then but i think you know all of this sort of ties into the fact that people would just want to believe that it can work right um they do want the apps to go and say oh we are based on science and this is all scientifically proven but you know, I think people just like the idea that playing a game could make you smarter, even if actually there are a lot of other things you could be doing with your time that would help, um, you know, not necessarily make you smarter, but help keep your brain more supple. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. If you're listening to the podcast, we'll be right back after a few messages. If you're watching us live on either YouTube or Twitch, we'll be back instantaneously. Maybe after three seconds. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. All right, cyber listeners, we are back on with Adrian Hahn talking about his book, You've Been Played. It's all about gamification. Um, so the book starts to get really creepy 
we've been talking about a lot of self-improvement stuff and a lot of video games and how those principles have transferred over, but it's not just for consumer benefit that gamification is being used, right? Can we talk about Uber, Amazon warehouse workers, how these principles are being applied in these grindy jobs? Yes. So a lot of workplaces are now being gamified, uh, especially places where people are not paid a lot of money, especially more kind of gig economy uh, workplaces like Uber or Lyft or DoorDash or that sort of thing. Um, And when I say gamified, there's kind of really two different ways. If you look at something like Uber, then um, I I actually mentioned this to, I I mentioned the fact that I was writing a book about gamification to my Uber driver. And he was like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you mean because I get these quests, you know, every week and I need to go and pick a quest about um you know what kind of bonus i'll get so one quest might say if you do 40 trips this week then you get a 50 dollar bonus and he did not like this even though he got a bonus and because partly he felt it was kind of infantilizing and partly because he felt that it just made the it, it really obfuscated the compensation that he'd be getting at the end of the week and i think that's what a lot of these uh gamified gig economy apps do is that um, they will make it really hard to know what you're actually going to get paid. So even though they might say, oh, if you go and do this mission, quote unquote mission, you know, uh, of doing these trips or doing these trips in a certain area, we'll give you an extra $5. Um, I think what a lot of people prefer is just being paid more money, you know, and uh, being paid a you know, stable wage. So that's really popular in a lot of, uh, a lot of jobs. It's wild. It's not just gamification, but it's like casinofication of things, right? It's the it's the hiding of what the rewards are going to be and what your chances are. I think that's right? it, that's it. That's it exactly because it's not predictable. You know, one of the things that people in uh, India and Indonesia have complained about in terms of gig economy uh, gamification with uh, Amazon delivery services and Gojek is that, you know, you might be given this mission, but then you're like, it's really up to the app to decide how many jobs it's going to give you in that day. And people have complained about getting up to midnight and just being like one or two missions short, one or two jobs short of completing their mission, right? And so on the one hand, it looks cool. It looks fun, you know, getting these quests. On the other hand, it's completely out of your control whether you can complete these or what missions you get offered. And I think that... The thing that is really interesting is that these don't have to be called missions or quests or badges or achievements. They could just be called tasks, but they call them missions or quests because people understand the language of video games and they assume that when someone uses language from video games, they're creating a kind of fun, fair system, when in reality, it's anything but that. Another thing you said that I that that caught my attention is that it's also infantilizing, right? Yeah. A lot of these jobs are, are starting to treat people not like workers, but almost like children. Yeah, children or or kind of like meat puppets. Honestly, <laughs> you know, um, you know, they're there until you know. And and one of the things that has come up is it makes it these um, gamified interfaces are a replacement or being able to talk to a manager directly. Um, So people have complained about the fact that 
you know, if they want to challenge in a particular job or, or ask on about their pay, they can't. They just have to go and play according to the game. And again, that feels infantilizing that, you know, you're using Uber or using, you know, uh, DoorDash and there are these confetti and badges over the screen. But it's like, yeah, but I just want to talk to someone because this is my living. It's not a game, but it's treating it like it's a game. Right. And if you put that, that digital abstraction between you and the boss, um, it becomes hard to even know who or what you're working for, right? Yeah, you know, it, it benefits um, the owners of the company in two ways. One is it lets them control uh, workers at a far greater scale, right? So instead of having to talk to workers individually and say, hey, you did a bad job or you did a good job, now you can just go and run the ball through this game. Um, and also it helps them save money just by by um, by obfuscating rates of pay and by changing them every time. So I think that it's, you know, it's it's kind of amazing to me how a lot of people just take this for granted now. I'm like, you know, work didn't used to be like this and, and we don't really have to accept it. But, um, you know, even in Amazon warehouses, even in, you know, US truck drivers, even in, you know, quote unquote, white collar work, um, higher paid jobs, you know, you're seeing gamification really creep in. Well, and I also think it devalues play. It devalues your off time when your work starts to look like the thing that you do to relax. You no longer want to do that thing to relax, right? Well, I, I think it's a really twisted way of uh, workplaces appropriating this kind of aesthetics and language from things that we associate with fun and freedom and choice into something where, you know, like if there's anything defining about a game, surely it has to be that you can choose whether you play it or not, right? It's not much of a game if someone forces you to go and play chess or whatever, right? You know, you're probably not going to have fun at that. Whereas, you know, to, to imagine that you can have a game that you're forced to play and where the rules are probably rigged against you, that's not much of a game. And so, yeah, it's such a kind of twisted, twisted thing. Let's get into some of the government stuff. You you write about socials or the, you write about China's social credit score, which is something that gets thrown around here a lot as kind of like a scare story. Um, what's the reality of it, and how how is gamification starting to be used by governments? Yeah, so I think a lot of people have heard about the Chinese social credit score, and I think in Western popular culture, the idea is that you know there's a billion Chinese people who get awarded or deducted points based on their behavior. And the truth is kind of more interesting than that. So there's not one single Chinese social credit score. It's more like a dozen or a couple of dozen pilot programs in various Chinese cities. Now, of course, Chinese cities are really big. And so that's still tens of millions of people. (laughs) And these credit score systems tend to hook into... um, you know, a lot of data that the city has. So, um, you know, whether you've volunteered, whether you've, um, you know, been involved in traffic incidents, you know, whether you've been late on your payments, that sort of thing. And so they will, in these cities, reward and uh, punish you based on your behavior. And if you get a lot of points, then you get certain um, perks, like being able to, you know, use public services, you know, at a higher quality, get better loan rates, that sort of thing. And if you do badly, then, you know, those things might be denied from you. 
Um, so it's not super sophisticated yet, but it is getting more sophisticated and it's getting more widespread. And for me, what's kind of more um, disturbing is not so much the fact that it's you know being used by a lot of people. It's more the fact that the Chinese government uh, is really interested and is want to push this and want to experiment with this. But it's really worth saying that um, a lot of people in China seem to like the idea of a social credit score. And the reason why they like it uh, is because they think that uh, the West already has a social credit score. And so, uh, you know, doesn't the West already have financial credit scores? Doesn't the West already have, you know, things like scores, um, about you know your health insurance and so if the west has it why shouldn't china have it just shouldn't this be a good way to establish trust so it's a kind of funny circular um reasoning there right it's not like we don't have fico experian these credit agencies that do watch how you borrow and spend money your relationship with your creditors right it's not quite the same thing but i would also argue especially for like you and i uh, the way we interact in the world online um, builds up a kind of social credit score for us as journalists. It's informal, uh, but it is enforced to a certain extent, right? It's not quite the same thing because it's not top-down. It's like a grassroots sort of thing, but it, it does exist. Right, and, you know, it's become more explicit now that, you know, social media uh has these quantified totals associated with it. You know, uh, it is possible now to see people's Twitter followers and TikTok followers and views and, and favorites, and you can see who appears to be more influential than other people. And, you know, I remember when I was first writing for a newspaper in the UK, and they had an internal dashboard about, you know, how many views your article had received. And if my article was doing really well, then, you know, I guess to write more. Um, but, you know, of course, if you went back 10 years before that, um, none of this information was really visible at all, right? Um, not even to necessarily the people running the newspaper. You know, if you publish a newspaper, then you might get some letters from people about, oh, I like this columnist or I don't like this columnist. But you actually have no idea how much, you know, um, an article in the physical paper was actually read. And so this kind of gamification of social media um, and of media in general is really new and and it's come about because we're able to quantify this stuff all right let's get into something pretty scary uh that you kind of do towards the end of the book it's something that you've actually written about at motherboard i believe it was one on your personal blog and then we republished it um QAnon. there are kind of these augmented reality games that people are creating for themselves through social media uh, can you explain this to me and how it ties into what we've been talking about? Yeah. So, you know, like everyone, I was really concerned about the rise of QAnon a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, I started looking into people's relationship with it. <clears throat> and one thing that I saw again and again was people saying, oh, uh, I did my research. That's why I follow QAnon. Or you should do your research. That way, you know, you'd understand the truth. And it was always like, I've done my research. I'm like, what What, what do you mean you've done your research? I mean, you, you just mean that you've typed in QAnon into Google and, that, and clicked on some links, you know? And 
But, you know, I think firstly, for a lot of people, that is what research is. And secondly, I think the act of doing that kind of active searching and active discovery of media for people um, is more exciting and more fulfilling uh, and more engaging than just watching Fox News. And so I think QAnon is kind of a really interesting example of something that looks a bit like an alternate reality game in that you would think that QAnon, you know, should be not very popular because it's just absolutely insane. And, you know, there's, it's not like there's a, a single video or a single you know blog post or book that you can read to, to understand it. But actually, the fact that it's so distributed and the fact that it's kind of all over the place and, and it's hard to really put together is actually something that works in its favor because as, you know, I've seen as an alternate reality game designer, people actually really like the act of puzzling things out. They really like that and they feel like they've earned it more. And so I think the QAnon is kind of the first big example of that. Right. It turns you from a viewer of the news and something the news is maybe happening to to a participant in it, right? It gives you a certain measure of control over something that feels like chaos. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you see this in just the, you know the way in which people talk about other people in the world, you know, people say, oh, you're just an NPC, you're a bot, you know, as if, you know, you, you're not, you know, usually when talking about someone who disagrees with you. But, you know, I think this way of like seeing the world as a game and, and seeing people who are not seemingly active in discovering the truth um, is just becoming more popular. And I, I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm sort of, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit surprised by it because I would never have thought that it would become that pervasive. I think, I mean, we could sit here and talk all day about QAnon, but I also think it, it like feeds into some deep-seated conspiracy theories as old as America. Um, and I think it hits some very specific things that America has been afraid of for a very long time. But that's a different podcast. Um so I want to circle back to kind of two main points here at the end. One is, and we've, we touched on this a little bit. Um, I was shocked reading your book by how much of this stuff doesn't work and how much people don't want to talk about that. Yeah. You know, so it's really hard to study gamification because it'd be a bit like studying TV or studying movies. You know, they're all different. Um, you know, my game, Zombies Run, is very different from Duolingo, and that's very different from Uber. So it's hard to go and say whether gamification as a whole works. But if you look at the studies that have been done, they they don't show like a really, really sort of effective system. You know, often you find that when uh, gamification is introduced to a group of people or to a workplace, yes, there's a change in behavior, positive change in behavior over the short term, but then it goes away. And sometimes it reverses because people kind of get bored and they think, well, nothing has really changed about, about my workplace or about this activity. And I think the reason for that is that a lot of gamification uh, it's just really generic. You know, in the book, I call it generic gamification, where you just go and layer points and badges and achievements over exactly the same activity. So, you know, imagine you're packing boxes at Amazon, and now 
uh you get 10 points every time you pack a box and if you get a thousand points you get to go and you know unlock a sticker i mean that might be interesting for the first week or even the first month but then at the end of the day your job is still exactly the same (laughs) you know it's not any more interesting or fun and so it kind of goes back to back to the mean so why don't people talk about this well obviously you know if you're the person who's introduced gamification to workplace then then you want you know, your work to look impressive. Uh, if you're a gamification consultant, you know, the same goes for that. But I think also, you know, there's kind of two other things of work. One is the thing that I've talked about, which is that gamification might not be able to increase productivity or happiness, but it can uh, help cut workers' pay <laughs> by obfuscating it. So that's obviously um, good for some companies. But also, I think that people are just... People just want to believe that adding games to stuff or adding game-like things to to activities will always work, you know? And so it's kind of like touching the naive. Um, And I think it's going to take a while, really, before that that feeling uh, wears off. So is this a problem that needs to be addressed? And if so, how do we do that? I mean, I do think it needs to be addressed. I think that when people see gamification introduced into, you know, an app or a smartwatch or their workplace, they need to um, be skeptical and they need to assume that it's not necessarily there for their benefit and that it might be there to encourage them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And I think it's very easy for people to say, well, I wouldn't be fooled by gamification. But it's like you can be fooled for a surprisingly long time before you figure out what's going on. So, um, you know, there are examples of gamification being used for good. You know, there are some really great educational games and training games and things like that. Um, But more often than not, it does seem to be a way to manipulate people into you know, doing things that make other people more money, you know, or to sort of control people's behavior. And so, yeah, we need to be skeptical. Being skeptical, I think, is a great place to take us out. Adrian Hahn, the the, the book is You've Been Played. You can find it wherever uh, you can find. You can find it in all fine bookstores across the globe. This has been Cyber. I am Matthew Galt. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, if you are watching on YouTube, this will be a VOD that will live forever. If you're watching on Twitch, it'll be around for two weeks and then vanish into the ether. This will be a podcast a little bit later today. Uh, we will be back again later this week. We're going to be talking to the arms control wonk himself, Jeffrey Lewis, about nuclear fear and nuclear anxiety and how much we should actually be worrying about what Russia is doing in that space. I'm very much looking forward to that chat. So we will see you on Thursday. 3 p.m. Eastern on mother on twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV or youtube.com forward slash motherboard. You can catch us live again. Thank you for everyone that tuned in. Some great comments in the chat. Uh, stay safe out there on the internet. It's a dangerous place and try not to get played, but we probably will. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.